Some of you may remember back in Season 2 of Enterprise, assuming you're watching the Enterprise stuff, that I made a comment that there were a lot of episodes I just didn't remember. You know, I watched them the once through and that was it. I've been running into that a lot when it comes to Season 3 of TOS. There's still episodes, which I'm looking at the list, what's like, I don't remember that one, right? Like, that does not sound familiar to me. And so I'm just sitting at it like, Ugh. So, this was one of those. I didn't even recognize the title. Even when I looked at the episode summarization, it was just like, Eh? This episode was written by Meyer Dolvinsky. And, <laughs> well, directed by David Alexander. Also, technically the last... Th this is when Alexander Courage left the show. Now, he'd actually composed other music for this episode, which would show up in The Way to Eden and Requiem for Methuselah, but this was when Alexander Courage left the show. So that's another one gone. It's another one of our contributors pa passing out of Star Trek. <clears throat> uh, you know what? Let's build up to that. So there's no life on the planet. They really need to fix those sensors. But then they go down and... <gasps> It's Alexander, played by Michael Dunn. I've said this before, and I'll say this again. Star Trek lives and breathes on its guest stars. And Michael Dunn nails it. He's really good here. He absolutely sells this episode for me. And I just wanted to get that out right up front. I love him in every scene he's in. So we find this is another example of how to do an Earth-like thing, to reuse sets and models and props, by simply having it be, oh, we modeled ourselves after Plato, because sure, why not? We also find out these people are a product of eugenics. Okay. Now this is actually kind of neat in its own right. First of all, the fact that they idealize Plato's era in specific of Greece, that struck me as a little weird. And then I remembered something. You ever heard of the Old West? How about the Age of Sail? Would you believe both of those periods of real-life history are actually very small, and both of them were very brutish, ugly periods of history that were then romanticized, and thanks to what is effectively Seesaw Effect, are now really common settings, at least here in the States. I know this isn't necessarily true in other countries. But they're... they're you, you get the idea, right? It's not that out of bounds to have someone who was like... Oh my god, yes, I love this western thing. It's so great and wonderful. I'm going to make a whole thing on it. And then we have Firefly, right? It's the same concept. So I'm with it. I'm with it. We also see Alexander in the background playing some variant of chess with one of the Platoians or Platotians or whatever they call themselves. Plato's stealth children. And, um, yikes. I like how right off the bat they showcase the fact that, you know, poor Alexander is basically abused and misused as... Well, a slave, let's just call it what it is, by the others. So that's neat. So they mention how they have their telekinetic powers. They call them psychokinetic, but it, it, you know, whatever. They have telekinesis. They can move stuff with their brain. Okay, cool. Anybody who's done anything on superheroes knows that telekinesis is kind of a generic superpower, but also one that, if properly utilized, is absolutely insanely powerful. You know, the ability to squeeze a blood vessel in the brain is one of the more commonly quoted things. See Babylon 5 for a good example of that. But even assuming you can't do that kind of precision, 
Telekinesis can still be a very useful, very powerful power, but it's usually more of a utility thing, which actually makes sense. It's exactly how it is portrayed leading up to this, the events of this episode. Unfortunately, this also, uh, <laughs> this also doesn't quite make sense because the way they describe it in this, excuse me, not describe, the way they present it once the episode actually gets started is not that they have telekinetic abilities, but rather that they have generic mind powers. Oh, you know what I'm talking about when they just have godlike abilities and they can just make stuff happen because they can just make stuff happen. See Trelane or Gary Mitchell or whoever else. There's several examples of this throughout the course of this series up till now. And, of course, the people with the mind powers are evil and corrupt because, of course, they are. I do like this episode, by the way. I don't know if I said that already. Um, but this surprised me by how much I enjoyed it. But um, not uh, not for the mind powers. In fact, what I would call the B-plot of this episode is easily the least important, least interesting aspect of it. Either way, he, so he has a telekinetic thing. And this is also when we find out that they have no medics and basically no immune system. So they are amazingly fragile. We also find out later that their, their telekinetic power doesn't even come from them. It's just something in the atmosphere. So that, or rather in the, the materials, the ketronine or whatever it is. So that's cool too. They're, it's like having a bunch of quarians. That took me a second. Sorry. I kept wanting to say tallies and it's like, no, that doesn't quite work. I mean, I guess you could say it that way. There's a bunch of quarians who, because they're eating a specific nutrient, they're eating Snickers. And instead of, you know, like Red Bull gives you wings, Snickers gives you power. It's just, that's kind of how it's portrayed. Ugh. These hit the ship and everything's all horrible and blah, blah, blah. This then leads to uh, a couple of interesting tidbits. It's made very obvious very early that these are corrupt people. Obviously, there's the thing in the teaser where Alexander gives his, or tries to give his warning, but then ends up biting his own hand. There's also the bit where Trelane's mother walks up and says, Tell me, how old do you think I am? I'd say about 35. And what's funny is she says, Don't worry, I'm not vain. And as soon as he says 35, she's like, <gasps> And immediately starts going for her neck. I, I mean, I, I stopped aging at 30. Well, either way, you're wrong. And she's obviously bothered by being called 35. Cute. Then there's the fact that Alexander mentions that if Parman dies, the others will kill to claim his spot. There's not a lot stated about the hierarchy of the society. All we know is that whoever's strongest gets to be the top dog. It's a, it's kind of a Sith thing, actually. You know, whoever is the most powerful Force user, they're the ones who get to be in charge. Okay, sure. But um, I, I find myself wondering exactly how cutthroat they would be, especially since, near as I can tell, they don't have the ability to reproduce. Which and, and you're probably thinking, why is that relevant? Well, first of all, it makes sense, since after all, they would probably need a doctor to do that. But um, more to the point, if they have no ability to reproduce, they have no ability to re replenish their numbers, which means they're a finite resource pool. And yet they're still apparently willing to kill in order to accomplish their ends. It just makes me wonder. There's no look at the internecine politics here whatsoever. That's pretty much the only insight we get into it is Alexander's comment there. Just food for thought. <laughs> so then they're like, you know what? This place sucks. Can we get out of here? Spock even says it'll be gratifying to leave. And Kirk's like, yeah, let's just, uh, let's, uh, let's just go. Is that cool? 
Okay, we've healed him. Let's go. Nope, they've already taken over the ship. Uh huh. I do like this though. I like that. There you go. I get to get the get the joke out of the way. The only reason that this usually bothers me in fiction where someone's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm totally stupid and don't recognize that I'm in danger or threat." No, in this case, they actually recognize very quickly and very efficiently the danger of the situation and try to get the hell out of dodge. It's just they are not allowed to. This um Uh, there's a couple of scenes that happen, and I want to talk about them out of order, so forgive me. Let's talk about the horror first. This is probably the best horror I've seen so far in Star Trek TOS. What happens is, he, Kirk goes and demands to be let go, and there's an argument, and, and uh, Parman makes him slap himself over and over and over. Later on, they go, and they're like, hang on, we wish to thank you. Here's gifts. You know, they give him the shield, the, the scroll, and I don't remember what the third thing is, and it doesn't matter. Here. And then he flat out says, you know, you have undoubtedly lost your temper in your life. I lost my temper. I am sorry. And Kirk's like, what's really interesting is Kirk is magnanimous here. He's like, okay. You know, apology accepted. Can we leave now, please? And he's, he's, he's quietly insistent. He is, if I were to put it bluntly, actually diplomatic. It's it's nice to see. This then leads to the insistence that McCoy has to stay, because we might need another doctor. This is amazingly stupid, because McCoy is, no offense, um, not young, and even if he was young, he, they're going to get, what, 80 years out of him before they're going to meet another doctor, which is, of course, probably part of the reason why they don't go along with this. After all, if McCoy just... Um, decided to acquiesce to their request, then he has just established a precedence of capitulation. So, uh, that, that's neat. So, <clears throat> Kirk is like, no. McCoy is like, no. Everyone's like, no. So, there's, so then the torture starts. This is when the horror happens that I referenced earlier. It's, it reminds me of The Thaw. You remember that episode of Voyager? That was actually among my favorites of earlier Voyager, and probably one of the better episodes of season two, in my opinion. A god-awful season, by my opinion. Because what they did was they so seamlessly and beautifully showed things that weren't horrific in a horrific light to make horror. One of my personal favorite forms of horror, right? Instead of, you know, or whatever, it was... And then we crushed the skull! And that's the type of horror they're going for. The, the, the non-sequitur. Well, that's like, it's kind of a more of a juxtaposition thing. The contrast is what really sells it. So they're being forced to do silly, ridiculous stuff, and you're probably looking at that laughing without realizing that's what's happening is these people are being forced to do things against their will while they are constantly straining against it. They're being publicly humiliated and shamed if a slave owner decided to drag out a slave out into the public and force them to dance for their amusement, that would be horrifying. And thus we see how this is presented as something that is silly, or I'm saying presented silly to extract horror. You see why I compare this to the Thaw. Probably doesn't help that the Thaw, or does help, I should say, that the Thaw was in many ways inspired by TOS and was probably the most TOS episode of Voyager. So we see this as they're being tortured, because that's what it is, and publicly humiliated. But then it gets even worse. I mean, first they try to, you know, Spock nearly crushes 
Kirk's face, and there's just this tense moment there. But what really gets to it is when he starts overwhelming Spock's emotions, flooding him with emotion. That's messed. That would mess with a normal human being. Spock's a Vulcan. What they're doing is effectively mentally poisoning him. In addition to the fact that it's probably just buffeting his mental barriers as he's constantly trying to retain some semblance of self-control and failing miserably. We know exactly how much this affects Spock because of Nimoy's excellent acting in the following scene where he is astonishingly quiet and controlled. And everything he does and says is at a very, very even temper barely altering his tone or his movement as he barely moves, everything very efficient and cold. And as he slowly gets up and walks over and grabs the vase as he mentions that he must regain his control, he smashes it with his hand. This is horrifying! <laughs> as I say with a grin, apparently I'm evil, go figure. But no, this is great. This is very well done. And it only really has the impact it does because of someone that, like me who is invested in the show and understands what this means. Kirk, the captain, being forced to dance for someone's amusement, and Spock, the Vulcan, being forced to have a flood of emotions. This is site-specific torture, custom-crafted for both of them. Think about that. Maybe Trelane's mother isn't a coincidence here, is she? It's the same actress, if you're not getting it. Yeah. Now this... <laughs> um, this leads to a nice little bit. Uh, humans venting their emotions is something that is considered healthy, right? It's the opposite of bottling it up. I've talked about that before. Venting. Proper venting. Which doesn't mean going and smashing up your house or hitting your loved one or otherwise being a horrible, disgusting human being. No. It means a healthy expulsion of whatever pent-up frustration or emotions you happen to have. Some people craft, some people fight, as in like, you know, kickboxing or fighting or martial arts. Some people go to sports. Some people play in sports. Some people just work on something. It's one of my big things. Uh, I've actually talked about this before. One of the things I'll do is I'll go and I'll do the dishes, which really just helps me to center myself and to force my force all of that out as I'm, you know, cleaning up everything. I don't know. Cleaning in general is a big thing for me. It's one of the reasons my, my apartment's so clean, is because cleaning is something I do to vent. You can have sex to vent. You can just go on a jog and do exercise to vent. You can play video games to vent. You get the point. Healthy venting is exactly that. So that expulsion is something that they mentioned, that both McCoy and Kirk mentioned that they need because they are pissed. Kirk went through what he went through. Spock went through what he went through. McCoy was forced to watch. And the whole time, Parman's like, this is your fault. How can you bear to see this go happen to your friends? Which is the classic 101 villain approach of, this is your fault for allowing it to happen, not my fault for actually doing it. Hate that crap. But of course, then we get the idea that for a Vulcan, it's the flip, isn't it? A Vulcan can't just vent healthily. A Vulcan needs to control. A Vulcan must control their emotions properly, otherwise it's literally unhealthy for them. This is true even in mo more modern tracks, too. It's just nice to see that, uh, that the little insight into to the, the psychology, for lack of a better way, of how humans versus Vulcans work, and to help distinguish Vulcans from humans. 
But I haven't been talking about the star of the show this whole time because I wanted to talk about him in one big bunch. Alexander. Alexander's awesome. Every scene, he just steals the scene. He's fantastic. And what's really awesome is the way Kirk treats him like he's a normal person. You know why? Because he is. This is it, it, Kirk at no point in time belittles him or berates him. Because why would he? He's a person, right? But I point that out because that normalcy of it is exactly how that should be, in my opinion. The fact that he's shorter than everyone else doesn't matter. It isn't part of the equation. Why should it be? He's a person, right? But, that, but the, the, the sheer normalcy with which Kirk approaches it is what helps sell it for me. There's a bit early on where Kirk says, are there others like you? And Alexander's like, what do you mean? Others who don't have the mental powers. And he's like, oh, I, th I thought you meant my size. No. No, not at all. And Alexander and his character arc, he goes through a character arc throughout the episode as he... Oh, God. I'm, I'm actually tearing up just a tiny bit because I know what he means. He... He talks about how he looked up to these people and he venerated them, and when they would tell him that he was crap, he'd believe it. It's the only logical explanation, right? That the problem is with me, that I'm the loser, and I'm the worthless one, and the people who are beating me down physically, mentally, and emotionally are in the right, and therefore I am the one to blame, and therefore I am the one who deserves this, and therefore I am the one who should be thankful for the opportunity to be the one who licks their boots, to merely be in their presence, and so forth, and etc. And when I phrase it that way, that probably sounds kind of familiar to some of you, I'm sure. If not for, you know, for those of you who haven't experienced that personally, I'm sure you could think of an example of either in your life or something you've read or seen where such a toxic relationship has existed. And I use that word very carefully and specifically. I know the internet likes to overuse that word. Allow me to be very clear, I am not misusing that word. That is a truly toxic interaction, whether it's romantic or not, it doesn't matter. That is abusive. And the way he describes that, the way he, again, huge, huge praise. Uh, Mr. Dunn does a just a wonderful job of the role. Really, really nails it. The way he does this, the way he gets across that, I, I almost feel like either he's a really, really good actor or there's some personal experience going into that. And he mentions how he was afraid, and but he's not afraid anymore. He's going to go and he's going to fight them and he's going to at least hurt them. And, and he, he's like, no, what are you doing? The, you can't do this. And he's like, no, why do you care? You're going to die anyways. And Kirk says, well, if we're going to die anyways, why should you die too? And with that simple act, he establishes a new precedent that your life matters which it does by the way i don't know if you're aware of that but it's true and by establishing that precedent kirk reaches out to him legitimately genuinely like a person to another person like you should yeah this is actually getting to me you see I, I unfortunately don't have much more to say about it it's it's an amazing character who has a great arc who is wonderfully human and empathetic and is treated brilliantly and actually has some great character interactions with Kirk and the others, but mostly Kirk. Oh my god. And then there's this great, great bit 
where they figure out, okay, let's figure out, because this is a threat episode. Let's just go ahead and say that. This is a threat episode. Uh, the threat is the, the Platosians, whatever. We need to get away from them. Okay. There's this bit where they figure out, and that'll give us superpowers. God, could you imagine if that was a thing in real life? Yes, I know. The boys. I get it. <clears throat> so, and they're going to be superpowered, and they offer it to him. They even offer it for him to, to have the same power to take over, to rule. You know what he says? No! No, keep your crap. Keep your powers. You think I want to be like them? My enemy? You think I want to lounge around having things done for me all day and just becoming a blob? You think that I want to torment and hurt others and control others? And he just goes off on this rant about how much he doesn't want to be that. It's a great character moment for a guest star, but again, good guest stars. Star Trek, right? So, uh, so then we get to the second humiliation scene. Now, here's the thing. As I'm watching the second humiliation scene, because that's what it is, the first one was straight-up horror. This one is, too, but in a different way. This isn't actually for horror in the strictest sense of the word. This is horror in service of character. And we get two good tidbits of character. Number one, Chapel and Spock. Now, Chapel's been crushing on Spock literally since our first introduction into the show, since the very first scene, first episode, excuse me. I don't think it was the first scene. I don't remember. The idea of being romantically connected to Spock very much appeals to her. This is the power of perversion right here. Now, I know what you're thinking. Oh, no, 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 no. I know that usually when the word perversion or perverted is used, it has sexual connotations. But that's not actually what I mean it as, even though this applies in a sexual manner in this case. Perversion is to take something and to make it worse. A spoiled, wicked, cruel, negative, whatever word you want to apply here, whatever adjective. It brings it down to be less than slash worse than it was. That is perversion, right? The power of perversion is that an enormous number of bad things in real life and in our society and our existence, our human culture, are good things that have been perverted down. This is not a hard concept. Imagine if there's someone... Oh, there's, a, there's an episode, I think it's actually a Farscape episode. I can't remember. There's an episode where someone is offered someone they've been crushing on for a long time. But it's under, like, mind control. And their response is, no. DS9 kind of did that with If Wishes Were Horses, with Bashir and Dax. But this is still it's something where it's obviously a no. Why? Because it is perverted. Not, not, you see why I had to preface the definition of that word. Because the actual desire is for someone who wants you back. Not someone who's being forced into it. Both Chapel and Spock, but mostly Chapel, acknowledge that this is forced. This is not what she wants. This is not what he wants. This is not a choice. This is then horrifying in service of character. And we see that character as she is struggling against it. We see this again with Uhura. Yeah, I thought I'd finally get to this point. And Uhura obviously is talking about how she's afraid. And her big thing, there's no romantic connection there at all, by the way, which makes perfect sense. Everyone involved. All the actors, all the cast, all the writers say there's no romantic connection whatsoever between Uhura and Kirk, which is fine. 
But there is still that thing where she mentions that him being the captain is what has helped her many, many times to not be afraid. And that's what she's feeling right now is fear, which makes perfect sense. She's being forced to dance for the amusement of evil beings. That is a pretty fear-inducing thing. And thus, that then leads to the Uhura Kirk kiss. Pause. As you may know, I do a bunch of research for this show. I don't do as much as is physically possible because limitations of life and reality. Uh, if you've ever heard of uh, C.G.P. Gray, you know that he, he also has that same problem where if he strays too much off of the path in the search of knowledge, well, there's no end to that. So I try to keep it within a band of reasonability, and I check everything I possibly can. That's why I have so many books on my desk right now and the sources I use on the Internet. I bring all this up because every single source I have talks about this kiss. The big kiss between Uhura and Kirk. There's tons of information about this kiss. Basically nothing for the rest of the episode. Tiny little tidbits and little inferences about sets or cast or maybe the author who was brought in. But that's it. Everyone talks about the kiss. Can I read a quote for you? This is from Nichelle Nichols' book. And I quote... According to her, NBC was afraid of the kiss because some stations in the South could decide not to air the episode because of it. Finally, an agreement was made to film two versions of the scene, one where Kirk Uhura kissed, the one where they did not. They filmed the first version with the kiss, that's the one we see, successfully. Then Shatner deliberately flubbed every take of the latter, making it unusable and leaving the kiss intact. Michelle Rickles writes, quote, the next day they screened the dailies, and though I rarely attended them, I couldn't miss this one. Everyone watched as Kirk and Uhura kissed and kissed and kissed, and I'd like to set the record straight. Although, uh, although Kirk and Uhura fought it, they did kiss in every single scene. When the non-kissing scene came on, everyone in the room cracked up. The last shot, which looked okay on the set, actually had Bill wildly crossing his eyes. It was so corny and plain bad, it was unusable. The only alternative was to cut out the scene altogether, but that was impossible to do without ruining the entire episode. Finally, the guys in charge relented. To hell with it. Let's just go with the kiss. I guess they figured if they were going to be canceled a few months anyways, so the kiss stayed. There are several other accounts about that incident, which all actually corroborate. In fact, both Shatner's book and Nichelle Nichols's book confirm something. The two actors didn't like each other, and there was a lot of, eh, between the two. But there was probably one big thing that both actors agreed on not vitriolically, violently. They, they very much agreed on one point. The kiss had to stay in. It's like the one thing they unified on, and they were like, no, this is happening. This is going to be a kiss, and this is going to be on camera, and we're not going to flub it. And that's why Shatner deliberately flubbed the takes so that they wouldn't be usable, so they'd have to use it. There are some conflicting accounts about the response to this. Most accounts I have said, I have read said, that there wasn't much negative feedback as far as mail or anything like that, but a lot of positive feedback, a huge amount, actually. However, I have also read accounts that the, one of the reasons this episode rated so low is because there are quite a few stations which flat-out refused to show the episode when this was live, when this was new, which would, you know, kind of be the negative response to that one. Now... <sighs> I mentioned this. You notice this is one of the last things I talk about. It's one of the last scenes in the episode, actually. It's like the second to last scene. I mention all of this stuff here. I think this is another example of Seesaw Effect, to be completely blunt. I think people took big big notice of the kiss, and so people took big notice of the kiss, which meant big people took notice of the kiss. In short, simply because it was gathering attention is why it gathers so much attention. It's kind of a non-thing 
relatively speaking. I know what you're thinking, oh, but it was such a big deal back then. Possibly. Debatable, though. By my count, this is, of course, a very rough estimate. This is actually the eighth interracial kiss on television in the era. Not counting, well, actually, that is counting Britain, which obviously had done several as, as well prior to this. There were also arguably interracial kissed, two of them, in fact, on Star Trek before this point. Now, those are debatable as well. And whether those count as much as, or is debatable. Whether this had the impact it should is debatable. The, the one thing that's kind of interesting, though, is there's some disagreement about the validity of whether or not Kirk and Uhura would have kissed without being forced to. Some people say that it was the network that pushed that, but actually Shatner himself has flat out said, and I think Nichols backs him up on this, I didn't read her part of that book, I apologize, but I did read his part of his book, where he says it couldn't have been legitimate because there's just no romance there. Kirk and Uhura have no romantic interest in each other, so they can't just make that up for the sake of doing the, the, the historic kiss. So it had to be forced, and so it was forced. But again, there's a lot of conflicting information about this one, and I feel like this is one of those zeitgeist moments. And I have nothing else to say about it other than the fact that I was born in the wrong era. <laughs> because I look at this like, okay, I didn't even know there was anything significant about it until someone pointed it out to me. Why would I? It's just two people kissing. Anyways, <clears throat> so now they torture them. They torture and they torture and they torture and they torture. No, what then happens is uh, they get their powers and they force them on Parman. And there's a great bit. Alexander goes to kill Parman. Why? Why do you stop me? And Kirk says, do you want to be like him? Now, I'm one of those persons who thinks that people should die. Sometimes people should die. I mean, it's not a pleasant thing to say, but I, I do think there are certain people who really do just need to be removed from the equation. I will admit that as a rarity and an exception, but, you know. Either way, I bring that up because I'm not sure Parman really should be one of those people who lives. And frankly, I think the ending of this episode absolutely freaking sucks. This is stupid on every level. This guy, who has been an unrepentant bastard with the manners and overall affection of a seven-year-old child who has been given godlike power and uses it to abuse all around him, including his supposed fellows, in order to satisfy his own sense of self-aggrandizement, who, by the way, if you're paying any kind of attention, is actually made even worse by the presence of his wife. He's at least willing to play along a bit. His wife is just straight, cold, evil. No better word for it. The entire episode. And in spite of all of this, he's like, no, I promise, I will never do this again. I have, earned, I have learned the error of my ways. And he is allowed to live. This man was also trying to torture someone's friends into getting them to accept staying here into a st status of servitude and slavery. Oh, I know he said that, you know, oh, you'll live amongst us, but no, I guarantee you that maybe inside of a month these people would be looking down on McCoy, who has no powers, just like they did on Alexander, for the same reason. Guaranteed. So... Then what happens is I feel like the script is chopped weirdly. That just keeps happening in season three. Because what happens is he says, no, I repent. And Spock and Kirk says, we cannot trust you. And he's like, oh. And then they're like, remember, we can re replicate this. And then they leave because now they trust him to have repented. What? Did I miss a scene or seven in there? There's like the vague threat of the fact that we can replicate this. But 
What? And then they just decide to leave them there? I I really actively dislike this ending, with with one notable exception. All these times across Trek, across all the Treks, I've been bringing up, why don't they bring them along? The guest star of the week on the planet, why don't they bring them along? And it's actually bugged me for years how many examples there are when they should have, in my opinion, done that. At long last, they bring some along, and thank God it's Alexander, who is awesome. But could you imagine how horrible it would be for him if they left him behind on this planet? God, that would be worse than torture. But no, instead they do actually bring him along, and in one of the books he actually goes on to be an ambassador, so that's cool. Oh my god. So that's it. Surprisingly good episode. Really crap ending. But at least Alexander gets to leave the frickin' planet and go join Galactic Society and have a freaking life. I do still like this one. It's still going on the VHS list, which is amusing for an episode that I didn't even remember. There are more than a few episodes coming up that I also don't remember. If I, I You know what? Hang on. Let me pull up a list here. Give me just a second. Actually, let's use this list. Do you mind? Give me just, give me just a moment here. So I'm looking at the upcomers here. Loading, loading, loading. So we've got Wink of an Eye, don't recognize that. That Which Survives, don't recognize that. Let That Be Your Last Battlefield, I know that one. Whom Gods Destroy, I do know that one. Mark of Gideon, don't recognize. Lights of Zitar, don't recognize. Cloudminders, kind of recognize. Way to Eden, worst Star Trek episode. Rocking from Methuselah, don't recognize. Savage Curtain, I only know that one because it's ridiculous. All Our Yesterdays, don't recognize. I don't recognize over half of the upcoming episodes. So this will be kind of like the first time around, kind of like we did back in Enterprise Season 2. So this should be interesting. Either way, I hope you guys have enjoyed. See you next time.